Events in global politics can happen quickly, often overnight. Absurdistan is recorded every Thursday and released every Friday. Because of this, we do run the risk of our stories being out of date by the time the episodes are published, and this happened to us this week. In the portion of today's episode where we give updates on our stories from last week, we covered the current state of the government of Italy, and we concluded by saying that the most likely scenario was a new general election in 2018. However, it turns out that this is wrong. Just today, an agreement was reached to form a government under the leadership of Giuseppe Conte, after it was decided that the controversial pick for finance minister Paolo Savona would be relegated to a less influential post in the government. This means that a nationalist, populist government will indeed take power in Italy. The rest of the context of the story is still accurate. Now, with that disclaimer out of the way, we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello Absurdistanis and welcome to Absurdistan, the transatlantic political podcast with news and opinion from the absurd political reality which is our home. My name is Adam. And my name is John. This week, after a couple European-centric episodes, we hop back across the pond to North America, where we'll be jumping into upcoming elections in Ontario and the cancellation of the recently resurrected TV show Roseanne. And because of our ongoing personal interest in some of the stories that we covered last week, we'll actually be looking back at the Irish abortion referendum and the now fully-fledged political crisis that's enveloping Italy. All this, as well as your regular weekly look-ahead coming up. But first, John, how are you? I guess I can't complain. I've been a little sick this week, but I'm feeling better today, so that's good. The nice weather is here, and I've been to the beach a couple times this week, so I guess I can't really complain. I can definitely complain. I'm in the middle of thesis writing, so I'm I'm dead. I, I'm I'm dead currently. You're, you're not only a couple more to, weeks to go, and you'll be all set. It's three weeks, and I think I'm done. But this is kind of the middle of the worst of it. But today we're going to start in Ontario. Uh, John, I don't know if you are aware of provincial politics in Canada, or if anyone's even interested in it. And you might be wondering why we would be covering an election in Ontario. I know that there is an election going on. Toronto politics has always sort of interested me since I learned about the existence of Rob Ford, just because he is such an incredibly controversial and hilarious character. Yeah, he started making the news in 2010. He became very controversial as the crack cocaine mayor, I believe it was. (laughs) I remember that. And he also started fistfights on the floor of... Was it the Parliament? It would have been the Toronto City Hall. Oh, yeah, the Toronto City Hall, yeah. I remember him starting lit- literal brawls uh, over disagreements uh, in, the, in the town hall meetings. It was just excellent theater. Unfortunately, Rob Ford passed away in 2016 due to cancer, but his older brother, Doug Ford, is kind of carrying the torch for the Ford family, the Ford family doctrine in particular, and we'll get into what that means in a second. But the Ontario election itself is a second-order election, which obviously means it's not a first-order or a national election, so it doesn't tend to get the same look-in as a national election would. It doesn't get the same turnout. It doesn't get the same media coverage. So 50% of Ontarians tend to show out to vote in provincial elections, where 60 percent plus of Canadians show out for federal elections. But in comparison to Europe, for instance, the population of Ontario is 13 million people, which would make it the ninth largest country in the EU if it was in the EU, which is incredible. Uh, Of 28 nations, it would be the ninth biggest. The reason why this is really interesting and really important is because what's happening in the Ontario election is a microcosm of one of the things that this podcast is particularly interested in, and that's populism, the rise of populism. And so this is a microcosm of the global populist movement, and that is personified in Doug Ford. I'm assuming he's cut from the same cloth as Rob. Entirely. The two of them started Ford Nation, which was a almost a, a personal campaign of sorts to implement a Ford conservative populist ideology. Uh, This was the platform that Rob Ford ran his mayoral campaigns on in Toronto, and his brother Doug Ford was actually a councillor on the Toronto City Council as well during the time of Rob Ford's mayorality. And so Doug Ford has taken the same populist rhetoric and moved it over to provincial elections. One of the things that always struck me about Rob Ford was he just didn't seem to 
care what anybody thought about him or said about him, the media, his opponents, even his constituents. And he almost undermined anybody who went against him by just, I don't want to say accepting who he was, but just sort of being honest about who he was with his cocaine and crack addictions and all of his various, you know, moral or immoral proclivities, you might want to say. He was, he just put it all out on the table and he opened up his personal life in a way that you don't see a lot of politicians doing. And he just said, yes, this is me and this is what I, this is what I've done, but this is what I stand for politically. Vote on me, vote for me based on that and not about my personal problems. Like that doesn't matter in the scope of my my political career. Unfortunately, the reactions that he had to the criticisms that he received ultimately ended up undermining his political career. And eventually he quit and unfortunately ended up passing away a few years later. But getting back to Ontario, this is a normally scheduled election, so it's not a special election or a snap election. It was always meant to be during this year, and it happens to be on June 7th. One of the biggest things that is characterizing this election, other than the rise of Doug Ford and potential populist leadership in Ontario, is a failure in government of the Liberal Party. Liberal Party is the same party, effectively, that is currently governing Canada under Justin Trudeau, although it's important to note that provincial politics, provincial parties in Canada, are separate from their federal counterparts. They are functionally different parties, so it means that they can Mm -hmm. focus in on specific provincial issues. The current Liberal government in Ontario is currently headed by Kathleen Wynne. She is the first lesbian, actually, to be elected to the position, which puts her in a category of firsts. It's an admirable position to be in, but her government has been less than satisfactory. The Liberals have been in government for about 15 years, but their running government is marked by mismanagement of the economy, particularly when it comes to the price of power. Price of electricity has skyrocketed in Ontario after the Liberal government closed all the coal plants as part of a green initiative, and they shifted mm-hmm. to hydropower. Unfortunately, hydropower has been increasing in price and I think has sextupled in their run in government, and so this is kind of the big thing. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing for a government of 15 years to continue to be popular, but given that one of the most fundamental uh, commodities in life, uh, electricity, it's, it's just skyrocketed under the leadership as well. Especially since the traditional price of electricity is rather low. I mean, your electricity bill usually isn't that high, and that's generally because a kilowatt is pretty cheap, and it's almost taken for granted that it's going to stay cheap. And one of the other problems under the Liberal government was that they just had a very unpopular pricing platform that would see different times of the day charge different prices. Uh, So they had peak, off-peak, mid-peak, and it just it, it wasn't popular. So the Liberals are running into a brick wall, effectively. They're going into this election and polling only has them about 19%, and that's being generous. Uh, I've seen figures as low as 16 or even 15%. So the other two main parties that are competing against the Liberals are the NDP, which are the left-leaning party in Canada. These guys tend to be Labour-focused. They tend to be more union-oriented. They tend to be your social lefties, uh, your social democrats in uh, Canadian politics. Liberals, for instance, tend to be more centrist, if not centre-right, centre-left. It depends who's in charge. And, of course you have the progressive conservatives, which to American ears might sound oxymoronic to have a progressive conservative, but this is simply the centre-right party in Ontario politics, and it's currently headed by Doug Ford, who was only elected to his position a few months ago in a rather controversial party election. What made it so controversial? The fact that he didn't win either the majority of votes or the majority of constituencies. So it, the the way that the internal progressive, I'll just call them PC, the, the internal PC party politics work in terms of electing leaders means that uh, you can kind of skirt around some of the majorities, kind of like the Electoral College, essentially, in US presidential elections, is that there seems to be this uh, runoff tally that sometimes gives the win to the person that comes in second or third in the, the first round of voting. Now, just like the Liberals, where they might be centre-left or centre-right, The PC can also change its shade depending on who its leader is. Under Doug Ford, it's taken a specifically populist bent. 
And this can be seen in the campaign slogan, for the people. That's just, that's so generically populist. <laughs> like this. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's one of those slogans that sounds fantastic, for the people. It's like, yes, yes, of course, for the pe- government, for the people, economics, for the people. Fantastic, but you're right. It's one of those vague. Well, what do you what do you actually mean by that? It's vague. It's idealistic. The thing that strikes me about so many populist movements is that they overpromise and underdeliver. Oh, and you oh have just these, you wait. Just you wait until you see Doug Ford's uh, campaign platform. Well, they overpromise and underdeliver, and they start out with these grand slogans like "for the people," and, and they're they're vague. They sound great, especially for people who are disaffected by the political status quo. To hear something like that when you feel like the elites are out of touch and they don't represent you, it galvanizes you, but in a way that might not necessarily make you look into policy specifics. I mean, you saw this with Trump where people voted for him because of his populist message and not so much for the specific policies that he was putting forward. I'm just always fascinated by the campaign slogans that work and the ones that don't, like Mm. for Obama, who campaigned almost as a populist lefty. Yeah. His was hope and change. Yeah. You know, hope for what and and what sort of change. But that that galvanized the the base that was looking for a change in the political status quo. So I think it was the New York Times that called Rob Ford the tin pot Trump in the north. (laughs) It seems accurate. So tell me if this sounds familiar. Wealthy family, wealthy father leaves an inheritance to his younger children. Children are wealthy, children are businessmen, and then go into politics running on an anti-elite campaign platform. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that sounds a little bit familiar. Yeah. And you can see where the New York Times might begin to kind of draw its uh, connections between Trump and Ford. You mean the failing New York Times? Yes, the hashtag failing New York Times. As we've already talked about, Rob Ford, Doug Ford's brother, figured out as early as 2010 that writing out scandal while blaming the media and other unspecified elites worked. It worked as a great political strategy. And so Doug Ford is taking on this mantle. He's combative, he's divisive, he's, he's been in his way his entire political career. As a conservative, he's in favour of small government. Uh, his main line in the election is money back in your pockets. Uh, but he also wants to bring back dollar beer. So it would get my vote. <laughs> he wants to minimise government regulation, which includes the uh, wine, liquor and beer industries, the, the whole alcohol industry. Uh, effectively, it would lower the price of beer and it would allow Canadians to purchase beer and wine and spirits far more easily and for cheaper rates. I'm all for that. Yeah, I mean, man of the people. So, <laughs> But as a conservative as well, particularly in the Canadian framework of a conservative, he's also anti-environmental in that he wants to scuttle efforts to combat global warming. Uh, he's also against a newly introduced sex ed program that was introduced by the Liberal government. He obviously disagrees with it. It's uh, a particular issue among social conservatives and even specifically among the new immigrant communities in Ontario. So he actually has some sway within these immigrant communities. It's important to note as well as immigrant communities have come up is that unlike Trump, he doesn't tend towards a nativist view of populism. So he has done events with the Sikh community that are in Ontario. Yeah, that's definitely not something that you see in the United States. No, and I think Canada, I I mean, the the more and more I learn about Canada, the the more I realise that they're not perfect. But I think this is one of the things that Canada kind of gets right where America fails is their ability to integrate new immigrants and new ways of doing things into the Canadian model. So you often hear a lot of hyphenated national identities. So you have Moroccan Canadians and Scottish Canadians and Irish Canadians and Nigerian Canadians, whereas you don't tend to hear that as much in America. Certainly you've got your Mexican Americans, your African Americans, but these are largely ethnic groups rather than distinctly cultural groups that maintain an element of their ethnic heritage as well. That's right. And I think that's because of the expectation in the United States that if you move here, you leave behind that cultural identity and sort of, it's, it's a melting pot, supposedly. So you're supposed to come here. It's and, assimilation. Right, exactly. You're, you, the expectation is assimilation. You come here and you become an American. You sign up to the American ideal. You talked before about how the United States doesn't have an ethnic nationalism. It's a civic nationalism based off of the the constitution and the unique American ideas that came out of the Enlightenment. So 
it's definitely not something that you you see where you'd have like in in Canada Nigerian Americans or French Americans it's you're, you're American Canada has more of what's called an integrationist policy in which they integrate the new cultures and heritages into the Canadian way of life uh, so it's, it's a slightly different background. And that even through its populist movement in Doug Ford is still recognised. So uh, Doug Ford is not a nativist in the same way that Trump has been. But again, like Trump, he has promised not to just change things, but to punish. So where Trump's line was lock her up in reference to his political opponent, Hillary Clinton, Doug Ford has promised to audit Kathleen Wynne and her government over the entirety of her time in office. Uh, one of the problems being is that the CEO of Hydro One, one of the major hydro companies that provides electricity to Ontario, is paid a $6 million salary a year. So Ford has just used this to beat Kathleen Wynne over the head and has gained support in doing so. It'll be interesting to see what actually comes of that because we know shortly after Trump was elected, he dropped any mention of prosecuting Hillary Clinton and just said, let bygones be bygones, essentially. He very much used that to his advantage to get the populist anti-establishment vote and then sort of dropped it almost immediately after his election. If I was a betting man, I would be betting that the same thing would happen in Ontario. There were certain non-conservative components to his platform that were included randomly. So, for instance, he said that he would continue to protect the liberal-created greenbelt that surrounds Toronto. And he also expelled a former leadership candidate, a woman named Tanya Granick Allen, who was running in Mississauga because of her strongly socially conservative views. So there's possibly an opening that potentially that Ford would be willing to work with the NDP or the Liberals on a less conservative front, a less conservative populist campaign. Because remember, as you said earlier, like populism doesn't necessarily have to be conservative. It just happens to be within the PC party in Ontario. Unfortunately, the, the problem with populism is that, well, there's a few issues with populism, but populists tend to be very black and white. They like to see the world in black and white, in right and wrong, very distinct. There's no great areas. So I'll actually quote Doug Ford here. Uh, he's talking about Trump. He says, absolutely, he respects women. There's millions of women that have voted for him. So all those millions of women are dumb. I don't think so. What Doug Ford is doing here is that he's using very simple logic to say, well, Trump is obviously a bad guy and he doesn't seem to like women, but millions of women voted for him. Therefore, he can't be a bad guy because women aren't dumb. Uh, so it's very, very simple logic. But of course, there are millions of women who voted for Trump, not necessarily because he was you know, pro-woman, but because there were a thousand other things that Trump stood for and they were willing to put up with the fact that Trump was a misogynistic tool. Yeah, it simplifies it down um, from the calculus that it actually is, because there are plenty of people that I know who voted for Hillary Clinton just because Trump was on the other side. They would have preferred a much further to the left candidate or to cast their vote for Jill Stein or somebody like that. But instead, they voted for somebody who they viewed to be the flawed candidate that they don't agree with on many policies because the alternative was worse. So just because women voted for Trump doesn't mean that he doesn't have inherently sexist views. Yeah, so populists tend to view things in very simplistic terms because it's an easy message to communicate. That guy's bad, we don't like him, trust me, because I don't like him. It's very, very simplistic logic. One of Trump's favorite catchphrases during his campaign was, he knows it, they know it, everybody knows it. It's like, well... What you're implying is that these are very simple things to understand when in actual fact running a country is one of the most complex and technically convoluted things to do. There is no simplicity in politics. There's no simplicity in governance at all. Uh, so the populist message is easy to communicate, but it's just not true. That's actually a really, really good point. One of the biggest complaints that people have about the American government is that it's it's so ineffective. It doesn't get things done. It's it, Congress is useless, right? And people think that there are super simple solutions to all these problems. And if only we had somebody in power who could see through all the bullcrap, then, you know, we could have a government that actually works and does something, but these people are just too corrupt. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I obviously understand the corruption in the system. But at the same time, like you said, the populist message just has this naive assumption that governing isn't that hard and you can get it done if you just simplify it. 
You also see it in Brexit as well, like the number of people that are saying, why don't we just cut ourselves free from the European Union just now? Like that's the simplest thing to do. It would only cause economic catastrophe for the next couple of generations. So uh, you see it all over the place. Uh, another thing, particularly you see it in Brexit, you saw it in Trump, you see it in Doug Ford's campaign. And it's another kind of black and white issue, actually, is anti-elitism. This idea that there are these elites over there and we are the real people. And that that's, one, it's very dangerous. The idea that we get to define who the real people are, who the real Americans are, who the real Canadians are, who the real British are. But again, it works. Doug Ford's been running on this campaign, calling elites people who drink champagne with their pinkies in the air. I, I, the populist imagery is fantastic. You've got to love it. If there's anything that you can credit Trump and Ford for as their kind of images that they give to represent their opponents. But this anti-elitism is here as well. And I, I'm uncomfortable with it. I think partly it's because I'm heading towards the elite myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if I can technically be considered the elite yet because I'm technically unemployed. <laughs> but <laughs> but if I, I do get into the position that I'm aiming for through my education, I'll be part of academia. I'll be part of the elite. And so it's disconcerting, but I recognize my own bias as well. Another aspect of the populist agenda that we've already seen is that they tend to promise the world, uh, but they've got no idea how to pay for it. And that's definitely true in Doug Ford's case. There's been a few uh, reports, particularly an independent economic analysis that's come out on uh, Doug Ford's campaign pledges. And for all the messaging that he sends out about the Liberal Party and overspending and over-budgeting and deficits, it actually turns out that what Doug Ford is promising is the biggest budget buster that exists between any of the parties currently running in Ontario. Another really interesting thing that Ford has done is he's revived Ford Nation. This was a brand that him and his brother kind of worked under uh, during their political tenure in Toronto. They've got Ford Nation Live now, which I find fascinating and scary because what they've done is they've created campaign messaging that looks and feels like news coverage all right so i'm going to play a clip for you just now here's what it sounds like the party with the taxpayers money is over it's done another move to put money back in your pocket doug ford was in kitchener today to announce that the average ontario family will save 12 percent on their hydro bills thanks to the ontario pc's honest and responsible hydro plan right now seniors small businesses and families are paying for hidden expenses on their hydro bills. Here's what Ford said he's going to do. First, he'll return all Hydro One dividends. I just find that really disconcerting. The fact that if you don't like the media, create your own. And it's not even like Fox News. It's not Fox News, for instance, that is an independent organization that covers news in a, a very, I would say, very obviously biased way. It's literally the campaign creating its own news coverage about the campaign. And so people will tune into this and they'll it might be the only thing that they'll listen to, particularly if, they've, uh, if they're drinking the Kool-Aid and they're just like fully with Ford Nation. Uh, there's nothing that they'll hear that will convince them otherwise of anything else. Uh, Trump tried to do something similar with uh, Trump TV, and I don't think that ever really got off the ground. But what's so interesting about populist candidates for me, and particularly I think we could trace this almost to the roots of postmodernism in our modern political discourse, where no matter what is said even by their candidate, people will not waver in their support of populist candidates. Um, you know, Trump, during his campaign, even came out and said that he could shoot somebody in broad daylight on the corner of the street and he wouldn't lose any supporters or votes. And we live in a really unique time now where almost anything that anybody says or does in public is recorded, either transcribed or on video. And you can literally have video evidence of people saying things that are absolutely 100% opposed to the things that they say they stand for now. And you still can't convince people who are hardcore supporters of these, these people that they don't really stand for what they say they are, or they're, they're promising the world just to get your vote because people so deeply want to believe in these candidates. They so deeply want to almost make these, these candidates into messianic figures almost that are here to, abolish the political order and to stand up for the real people 
And so often that never happens. People literally get to create their own realities. And the populist movement gives people the opportunity to do that. But the problem is that the populist agenda does actually have some legitimacy to it because there are deep-seated cultural and political alienations happening in North America, Europe, even India and other places as well. There are legitimate concerns that there is growing wealth inequality, that there is growing income inequality, that the movement of people is diluting cultures that are respected and loved by the people that participate in these cultures. Like These are all legitimate concerns. The populist movement is filling that gap. Unfortunately, they're filling the gap in such a way that they are promising the world without being able to deliver on it. So I worry about what the outcome is of populism other than angry defeatism, because eventually the thing will crumble. Eventually it will be shown to be untrue, and eventually the postmodern era that we're living in, by which we get to create our own realities, will also fall and for Doug Ford, I hope that he feels the full wrath of whatever position he gets himself into next. Because governing is not easy. Governing is nuanced. Governing is complex. Government deals with real people, not just the people that you claim to be the real people. This week, we saw the cancellation of the recently resurrected TV show, Roseanne. Now, the show originally ran from 1988 to 1997, and it was critically acclaimed. It fell in the top five ratings in six out of its nine seasons, and it was a very popular show. And I have no idea what you're talking about, because I was in the UK during that time, so I've never seen this show. I know it's it's odd that we're covering a TV show in here, but I think you you all will see how this fits into the theme of the podcast. We're we're not really interested in the show itself or the cancellation or the tabloid-ish politics that surround it, but more of the deeper conversation that we want to have about free speech and the implications of something like this cancellation on free speech. In 2017, the show was renewed by ABC for a 10th season. Now, the premiere of season 10 on March 27th had some of the highest ratings of any ABC show ever. It was so successful, in fact, that only three days after the premiere, it was renewed for an 11th season by ABC. The show focused on modern themes for the American working class, such as healthcare access, difficulty making ends meet, people having to live with their parents because they don't have jobs, gender identity issues, and specifically the left versus the right. Roseanne Barr plays the eponymous Roseanne for the show, is a avid Trump supporter. And the show does elucidate the power of a populist message on a disaffected working class. The reason that Roseanne supports Trump so much is because of the struggles of the middle class. And she sees him as a cure for these problems, as somebody who's going to come through and cut through all of the the red tape and the bureaucratic nonsense that is really hurting the American working class. And as a result of this, it was very popular. It, it, it had honest conversations between the left and the right. There are characters on the show who are left who voted for Jill Stein. There are characters on, on the show who voted for Trump. I mean, you have these very relatable themes going on in this show, such as you know having to share medication with each other and, 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 and ration your medication because you can't afford it because healthcare is so expensive in the States. It's, it's a very interesting view because so many times when, when I view this from the left, I view these, these middle-class, working-class problems, and I obviously think that, well, a, a, a more liberal approach to things is better where you, you move more towards the social de- democratic side that's going to try to solve these problems for the, the middle class by focusing on the middle and working classes. Whereas the populist message that's put forth by Trump so often promised a rebirth of the American working classes while policy-wise favoring the elite and the people who are already in power. So just really interesting juxtapositions in the show. Um, and actually, I, I kind of, I haven't watched really any full episodes, but the clips that I've seen I've actually quite enjoyed. The success of the show was very short-lived, however. On May 29th in 2018, in responding to a Twitter thread about Valerie Jarrett, a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, Roseanne Barr tweeted, quote, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ, which was referring to Valerie Jarrett, seemingly comparing her to an ape. Now, ABC had some misgivings about 
rebooting the show specifically because of Roseanne Barr's Twitter history. She's big into conspiracy theories regarding George Soros, criticisms of Barack Obama, very outspoken supporter of Trump. This tweet in particular was seen as racist and legitimately so throughout the 19th century. So much white supremacist rhetoric has compared African-Americans and black people to apes. Wanda Sykes, a producer and writer for the show, following this tweet, announced that she would no longer be involved in the show, which put pressure on ABC. Barr defended the tweet as being a joke, um, and she actually posted an apology directly to Valerie Jarrett, although her Twitter feed has been rather bizarre after this. Um, she's, she's going back and forth between defending what she said and making apologies and saying what she said wasn't wasn't actually comparing her to an ape and being racist, but... Cutting through all of that, her original tweet is definitely seen as racist. And later on in the day, ABC announced that they had reversed the decision for the renewal for the 11th season, and they canceled the show in the wake of these tweets. Good. I know that we're going to disagree on this, Adam, Mm -hmm. because I am a free speech absolutist, and you tend to not be so. Correct. So why do you think that ABC is correct in canceling the show? Because ABC is a private company. So in a sense, I could turn it on you and say, well, actually, I do agree with free speech, but free speech law in the United States doesn't protect you from consequences of using free speech in the public domain. It protects you from the government interfering with your life for saying something, well, saying many things, saying anything. Uh, But in this case, Roseanne Barr chose to use her free speech right, as she did, but that shouldn't protect her from losing a career opportunity, from losing the show itself. ABC, in its own right, seeing Roseanne Barr on its own platform, has the right to protect its own brand, to, in a sense, control its own speech, to use its speech in a way that communicates publicly. That's a legitimate point when you're talking about free speech. The United States treats corporations as as if they are people, so... So the producers over at ABC definitely have their right to regulate what's said on the airwaves under the ABC name. I totally agree with that. I just disagree with their decision, I guess I would say. So I understand that it's their free speech right to do so. I understand that, and I'm the biggest proponent of you suffering consequences for your free speech. So I I don't think that... There is a right to you saying whatever you want without consequence. I think so many times people on the far right and the far left view free speech as something where I can say whatever the hell I want and you just have to deal with it and I can't get any flack for it. You know, it's it's if you disagree with me, if you disagree with me violently, that is infringing upon my free speech right where no, that's just how free speech works. People will violently respond to something you say if it's an awful thing, if it's a racist thing, people will respond proportionally to what you said, and you can't then complain that your free speech is being limited. You exercised it, and you boiled consequences of it. But I disagree with ABC's decision. How so? First of all, I don't think it's a free speech issue for ABC. I think it's an advertiser's issue, because we live in a day and age where, and I understand, that's a legitimate concern. Is that a difference? Is that a difference between... Free speech for brand purposes and free speech for advertising? I guess they're, they're interrelated, but it's not on the principle of free speech. It's more about the money, which is understandable because it's a corporation. However, what bothers me is that we live in a day and age where companies can no longer be neutral. You see what I'm saying? So nowadays, if something happens and a company doesn't come out and repudiate it immediately... That's seen as support. So there is no neutral position anymore. You can't, if you're an advertiser on Fox News, for instance, and Bill O'Reilly says something ridiculous, just because you're advertising on Fox News, if you don't withdraw your advertisements, then that means then you default agree with what Bill O'Reilly said, which I don't think is true. If you withdraw it, then you are making a positive statement about your feelings about what he said. And so it's becoming more and more difficult in the public square for companies to be neutral. And I view a lot of this as virtue signaling, where it's like, oh, well, of course we're not racist, so we're going to withdraw our advertisements from this show, and this is so terrible that you said this. And I'm not saying what she said was okay, but 
what I worry about, particularly as a liberal, it's getting harder and harder for me to defend the left. Because there is legitimately what you could see as a liberal bias when it comes to these things. So, for instance, ABC also has another show called The View. And Joy Behar on The View recently came out and said that Mike Pence is crazy, essentially, because he thinks that Jesus speaks to him. And she said this on his on his show. So it's 100% negative towards his personal beliefs, and it's not racist, right? Right, exactly. There's a huge difference between saying that someone's daft for believing something, something and saying that a person is a lesser being. That's true. At the same time, she was attacking something that many, many Americans believe to be true, that you could actually ha- be communicated to by God, right? And she characterized him as essentially insane for believing that. Now, different than racism. I totally understand that. But at the same time, there was no censure for Joy Behar whatsoever, and nothing really came of that. She apologized, and it was, whatever, gone. I'm not apologizing for racism here. I view what Roseanne said was horrendous. It's, 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 It's vile, it's racist, it's gross. But at the same time, I'm more of a marketplace of ideas person. So... No, seriously. So, you know what? Roseanne said these things. Unfortunately, unfortunately, though, the marketplace of ideas isn't the market. Well, I agree with you, but if what Roseanne said was truly this terrible, terrible thing, and most people disagree with it, and most people would not watch the show because she said that, then let the show fail on its own. Uh, but then you get back to the whole should you punch a Nazi in the face argument that we've had for months, and that at, at what point does the society at large need to act to ensure that the main elements of its its society, such as free speech, isn't abused so as to reduce free speech. That's one of the difficulties that I have with absolute free speech, is that ultimately you could have a group of people who could begin to agree that people should have less free speech, and they could use their free speech rights to communicate that idea. You can communicate that idea, but in the United States, we have the First Amendment, and it's very strongly protected by the courts. So just because a group wants to remove First Amendment rights from somebody doesn't mean that that could actually ever happen. You're completely within your rights to, to say that. Um, you know, Richard Spencer, head of you know, whatever the neo-Nazi group that he, that he is the leader of, is against free speech, Right. But that doesn't mean if he were to get into power, the checks and balances of the system wouldn't just completely squash any policies that went. You have too much that. faith in both people and the system, is my estimation. I don't think that I do, because so many people thought that Trump was going to bring down all of these institutions that we have. And he has been fairly limited by the courts in doing his most extreme parts of his agenda. And I, I think that was something that you brought to my attention early on in his presidency, where he had all these things that were being overturned by the courts. And you said, well, look, this is the system operating as it should. And I I think that's true. You have somebody that's to the far right, like Trump, and he's trying to push the country far right, and he's trying to do, in many cases, unconstitutional things. And those are struck down by the courts because that's how the system is supposed to work. So I would be way more concerned about something like this in a country like the UK that doesn't have a constitutional protection of free speech. The United States is one of those rare countries that does. So I'm not concerned about it so much in the United States. Sure. And maybe I'm then speaking out of a British framework. Well, I mean, you guys are I think throwing right. comedians in jail for making jokes. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. It's, it's, and, and here's the thing. People get so offended that you know people say these are just jokes, and it's almost seen as like a cop-out for free speech. It's, oh, it was just a joke. I didn't mean it. And my, from my point of view, it doesn't matter if it's a joke. If she actually believes that, no skin off my back. Obviously, it's a really offensive thing, and it's going to be offensive to a large group of people. But she's an individual that believes that. Now, the show itself, right, is not, does not promote racist material whatsoever. So I just think it's nonsensical to cancel a show just because one person, one actor who is part of that show holds reprehensible views. I mean, if we threw out everything of people who had reprehensible views, then 99.9% of all culture that we've ever had would be moot. I mean, some of my favorite music of all time is Wagner, right? He's, he's amazing. Listening to his, his, his music, 
can just transport you to a different level. Now, if you're not a fan of classical, you won't really understand that. But he was an avowed anti-Semite, and he was actually one of the most admired composers by Adolf Hitler, right? That doesn't mean that what he made was not good and doesn't mean that what he made wasn't something that's worth keeping around and still um, enjoying and appreciating. And I think that at a time where we're so fractured politically, to have something like Roseanne on TV was actually probably in that positive because at least you had that sort of conversation going on in a, in a comedic, um, lighthearted way between the two sides where you never get that anywhere else. You don't get that on CNN or Fox or NBC, anywhere. It's always cutthroat us versus them mentalities. It's not this conversation that's going on. It's not bringing these things into people's lives in a way that makes them reconsider it, you know? It's not humanizing the other side, which I think something like Roseanne was doing. So I just think it's daft to take what one person says and then just scrap a whole thing because it was offensive, right? And um, so I do support, obviously, a right to free speech. I support ABC's right to do that. I don't necessarily agree with it, though. And like we've talked about this before, Adam, I'm a free speech absolutist. So it's very rare for me to compromise on stuff like this. I think that Joy Behar should have been able to say what she wants to say. I, I think anybody should be able to say whatever they want. De- and obviously they have to deal with the consequences. But I'm a, I'm a strict opponent of no platforming. I think that's just a, a utterly reprehensible and immoral thing to do. This week we're adding in something... A little bit more interesting, the stories that we covered last week, the Irish abortion referendum and the Italian political, it wasn't really a crisis then, but it is a crisis now. They're both just fascinating stories. So we thought that we'd actually revisit them and give you an update on both of them. So, John, what's been going on in Italy? When last we left you, it appeared that Italy had ended its stalemate and that a functioning government was emerging, a nationalist government at that. Nope. Giuseppe Conte, the the political outsider that was appointed as Prime Minister of Italy by President Sergio Mattarella, renounced his office on May 27th. President Mattarella would not approve Paolo Savona as finance minister. Now, this was Conte's pick, but really the pick was made by Matteo Salvini, the head of the party, the League. Paolo Savona is a Eurosceptic, and he's seen as anti-German, and Mattarella claimed that the parties just wanted to take Italy out of the Eurozone, and he would not allow that to happen, and he saw approving Savona as the finance minister would be a step towards that. So the next day, after Giuseppe Conte resigned, Mattarella tapped Carlo Cottarelli, an economist and former IMF director, as the new prime minister. Cottarelli said that if he gets a vote of confidence from Parliament, he would approve the budget law for 2019, and then ultimately the Parliament would be dissolved before a new general election at some point in 2019. And without a vote of confidence, the government would only deal with day-to-day operations and functions, and a new general election would be held in August 2018. Now, the Democratic Party, which we discussed last week, has announced that they will vote for confidence in Cottarelli, whereas the Five Star Movement, the Forza Italia, the Brothers of Italy, and the League will all vote against. So if you paid attention to last week's episode, that means it seems quite unlikely that Cottarelli will gain confidence from the Parliament. Cottarelli, in the meantime, is having difficulty pulling together ministers because it seems that many people don't want to be put into this temporary government before an election in 2018. It's just going to be a mess. And the League and the Five Star Movement have announced that they are willing to reopen negotiations together to form a political government after Giuseppe Conte having failed, obviously, as the prime minister to form a government. So it appears that we are heading towards a general election again for Italy in August 2018, barring some massive development or deal struck between the League and the Five Star Movement and barring Sergio Martorella approving any government that's formed. It really is turning into a proper political crisis because Italy is left with a democratic government for a few months and then effectively what you could have is a plebiscite on Eurozone membership uh, in August which could give a boost to the League and the Five Star Movement anyway, further isolating it from the EU. It's, It's a fascinating story that we'll just have to, well, keep an eye on. Meanwhile, up in Ireland, 66.4% 
voted in favour of repeal of the Eighth Amendment, which will in turn eventually legalise abortion in the Republic of Ireland. All counties except Donegal voted in favour of repeal, and even Donegal itself was 52 to 48 against, so it was quite close. All age groups voted for repeal except for the 65 and above, but even at that, 40% still voted in favour of repeal. So it looks like Ireland will be legalising abortion. But remember that what was voted on was just a change to the constitution. The Eirechtis, the Irish parliament, still has to put it into legislation as to what Irish abortion law will actually look like. And this is creating a little bit of a political kerfuffle because while everything seems to be across communities, across age groups, there seems to be no urban-rural divide in Ireland on this issue. There's seemingly no religious divide either. There's also not very much of a divide within political parties. Fianna Gael, Labour, Sinn Féin all seem to vote largely, supporters of these parties, largely in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment. The one party that is excluded from that is Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil is one of the two major centre-right parties in Irish politics, and their vote was split almost 50-50 down the middle. So Fianna Fáil has a lot to contend with, one, because of their own inward division on this issue, and two, because so many of their TDs, their, their MPs, members of parliament, were against repealing the Eighth Amendment. I think it was 70% of elected Fianna Fáil members of parliament were against repeal. And it just shows the party to be out of step of the field of the country, uh, a little bit... Uh, backwards, a little bit conservative leaning, uh, more than it normally should be. The problem is that there could actually be an election coming up. There's still a shaky, fragile agreement in the Irish government at the moment. But it could also play home to a number of pro-life one-issue voters who, being pro-life, just need a home for pro-life support. And so Fianna Fáil could become that, but it's a risky strategy because it is such a divisive issue. Amendment 8 has always been a poor amendment. It's like a child that comes in with a big red crayon shouting, no, there's no finesse, there's no nuance to the difficulties of the multifaceted issue that abortion is and the issues that it presents in real life. Obviously, since we covered this story last week, I paid close attention to the election and I was shocked to see what a landslide victory really it was for the repeal of the amendment, given it's such uh, a controversial issue and the fairly conservative social leanings that Ireland has had historically. But it struck me that with such a large turnout and such a large support of repeal, you may see less of a social instability or reaction to this repeal than you did in some place like the United States where it was legalized by the Supreme Court and not democratically um, because there was this public debate over the issue and there was the the opportunity for people to make their voices heard over this issue that you didn't have in the United States. So regardless of your feelings on the issue or what side you fall on, you do have to look at this uh, not necessarily as a positive, but as an example of a country being able to change itself socially without massive disruptive change passed down upon it by an unaccountable court and brought up from the grassroots by the people. Moving from past to future, we now cover a few stories that you should be paying attention to this week. This week, Spanish socialist leader Pedro Sanchez demanded Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy's resignation as a condition for stopping a vote of no confidence in the Spanish government that's scheduled to take place later on Friday. The Socialist Party announced their intention to challenge the government, currently a minority administration, after a court ruling earlier this month sentenced former officials from Rajoy's governing conservative Partido Popular to a combined 351 years in prison for corruption. Issues of corruption, as well as the party's handling of the Catalan crisis, which, remember, included police beatings of citizens, has led to a slump in the polls for the governing party. The motion of censure includes Sanchez's candidacy for the prime ministerial post. As the second largest party in parliament, Mr Sanchez will need the backing of pro-independence parties from Catalonia and the Basque Country. The promise of an open dialogue with the pro-separatist Catalans has actually gained their support, and now the balance of power rests with five Basque nationalist deputies. And just as we started recording this episode, those five Basque nationalist deputies have actually given their support for the motion of no confidence to go ahead. They look as if they're going to back a Sanchez government. So it looks like a change in government is just around the corner. And with change comes the hope of reduced tensions and hopefully, hope of all hopes, the end of the constitutional crisis in Catalonia. 
Will they or won't they? That's the question many of us are asking about the summit between North Korea and the U.S. Although President Trump has said that the meeting was canceled, preparations are still underway. This week, Kim Jong-shol, senior diplomat from North Korea, arrives in New York to carry out talks with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in an attempt to lay out a foundation for talks scheduled to take place on June 12th. Given the history of this story, it's hard to be optimistic that talks will take place, but it's definitely something to watch. As we enter the month of June, it's good to be aware of what's going to be coming up regarding Brexit. This is the beginning of crunch time for the British government. The British government still seems to be rather divided within itself as to how to go about Brexit negotiations, particularly as regards the Irish border. And the Irish Republican government is a little bit testy about the fact that Britain hasn't really done its homework yet. There's a major meeting coming up at the end of June, around the 23rd, in which the heads of government of all the EU countries will be getting together for their quarterly summit. During this meeting, the Brits are supposed to be putting forward the proposal for what the negotiated settlement for a withdrawal from the EU will look like. This doesn't look as if it's going to happen. So this is kind of a long-term look ahead, but keep an eye out for any Brexit news that will be coming your way over the next few weeks. Because like I said, this is the beginning of the end. We're almost there. On midnight Thursday, the temporary relief from United States tariffs on steel and aluminum for Canada, Mexico, and the European Union expired. This means that the 25% tariff on steel imports and the 10% tariff on aluminum imports will take effect. The White House has made no indication that they will extend the exemption. Now, keep in mind, the United States is currently in trade talks with the EU and involved in the renegotiation of NAFTA with Canada and Mexico. This move to reimpose tariffs may indicate a hard-line approach by the U.S. in these trade talks and could trigger retaliation from these countries. Something to keep an eye on. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget now that we're a few episodes in to begin rating us, if you enjoyed it, on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter either, at Absurdistanis. We're also on YouTube as Absurdistan, specifically with an exclamation point. Be sure to check out our website, absurdistanis.com. That's A-B-S-U-R-D-I-S-T-A-N-I-S.com. We post all episodes to this website, and we also host forums for discussions so that you, the audience, can engage with our content. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay informed.